If you could turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, we're going to continue on in Matthew's narrative. We're going to deal with the first 12 verses in that chapter. The uh, quote from Micah 5, which is why that was our scripture reading this morning. Uh, this will be a little different. This is not a three-point sermon. As you, If you looked at the notes, you probably already recognize that. Um, basically, um, one of my friends said uh, that Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. I'm sure he heard that from somebody else. And one of the things that happens is we've got so many things that we've kind of tossed on top of the biblical narrative. And so part of what we're going to be doing and looking at the setting of this text is separating some of the fact from fiction and things that we may have added to the text that is not really there. So hang with us. All right, let's read from chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall be shepherd, sorry, who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, and it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, it is one thing to seek the truth, it is another to love the truth and to live by that truth. And so we ask that you would work by your Spirit in our hearts so that we might know, love, and live by the truth about your Son that is revealed in your Word. We ask this in the name of the only begotten, the eternally begotten, unique Son, Jesus, who is the Messiah. Amen. For those of you who have been in Sunday school, at least one, one Sunday I talked about an opportunity I had to share the gospel with a guy who had come into my house to do a little repair work uh, for the warranty, and I was lamenting how I blew it, you know. Here was a guy whose wife, he said, was dying of cancer and he was distraught, and I never seemed to find the right words to kind of offer some sort of hope and comfort in Christ and to point him to Christ. Well, guess what? That guy came back this week. <laughs> 
and I still barely got a word in edgewise. He's a very talkative soul. And one of the stories that he told me while he was kind of putzing around the house and working on a few things of the carpet is that he, he mentioned that he had to be careful about what he said about his boss. Because recently he had gone into a customer's home and had begun to work on some things and had begun to talk about his boss and then came to realize through other parts of the discussion that this person worked for the builder. Whoops. <laughs> he was not wise about the situation. And here we have the Magi who are walking into a situation that they don't have all the details on. And they could make some very serious mistakes that could put the life of the recently born Messiah at risk. So what we read today is not just some sort of quaint little story, but it has incredible significance for us as we think about the birth and the life of Jesus, the Messiah. So our big idea this morning is that King Jesus divides people by their response to him, and that's kind of what we're going to work out. But before we can even get to that one point, we have to sort of set the stage of what's going on in this narrative that's, that is here. And uh, let's note a couple of things as we kind of get started. And it, First it says, after Jesus was born. And so this is some as yet undetermined amount of time after the birth of Jesus. And so one of the things that we often see and all, you know, we actually sing about a little bit this morning is, like, is as if the Magi show up on the birth night, you know, and they, they come into the manger and they do all this stuff. That's not really kind of what happened. Uh, the scriptures are different than what we often hear. And one of the things that we see as well in the text is that when they actually do find Mary and Jesus, they're in a house. So it's been a while, okay? But the, where the location of what the, where this takes place is Bethlehem of Judea. That is, where, that is where he was born. It's to distinguish this from the Bethlehem that existed in Galilee. There were two Bethlehems in that region. Matthew is specifying for us which one, because that one is incredibly important, because this is the Bethlehem that was the hometown of David, the idealized king of Israel, the one whose son Jesus is to be, according to chapter 1. Then we get to sort of the cast of characters here, the first of which is mentioned that this all takes place when Herod was king. Now, that, that is significant because that gives us the time frame of when this all takes place. Because his sons were not kings. His sons were called, technically, tetrarchs. Okay? So this lets us know that they're talking about Herod the Great, who was the king. He's an interesting character because he's half Jewish, but he was also half Edomite. And so many people challenged uh, his ability or right to rule as the king of the region, but he had been established as king by Rome. He was appointed by, at that point, you had uh, Octavius and Antony sort of as the two guys who one day would fight it out to be Caesar. And they were in, uh, Herod was approved by the Senate to be the king of this region. He ruled in this region from about 40 BC until his death in 4 BC. Okay, did you catch that little number, the, the little letters after the 4, the BC? <laughs> The monk who decided to set time according to the birth of Christ kind of missed it a little bit, <laughs> okay? Um, because Jesus is born before Herod dies, so that means he's born before 4 B.C., earlier than that. 
He died after a long illness. Herod was considered great in some ways because he brought peace to the region. And remember, this is a hotbed of rebellion and all kinds of controversy that goes on within this small, seemingly insignificant, from a worldly perspective, place. And yet he brought some relative peace to that area, and basically he never saw, never saw a building project he didn't like. He built the great temple. Okay? And many had said, if you hadn't seen Herod's temple, you hadn't seen a temple. He also built an amphitheater and brought the games to Jerusalem, which uh, did not win him any brownie points with the Jews of that day. He also, in, a way, in, a, in another move that really offended the locals of that region, brought the theater, the Greek theater, into Jerusalem. So uh, he was not a guy who, who uh, he really brought a lot of controversy into the room when he came. Okay? Near the end of his reign, we find that he's experiencing domestic problems. There's these, sort of these new challenges to the throne, and, and uh, his sons are sort of fighting amongst each other to see who will become the next king. And actually, none of them did become king, but uh, we'll leave some of that stuff for next week when we talk more about Herod the Great. And it's into uh, this situation that we find the Magi entering. And uh, the, the Magi, in the Greek, that's what it, that's what it is, uh, it's a transliteration of, uh, of this Persian term that referred to the priestly caste in Persia. Uh, it was a, a concept that had spread into Babylon, so we're not exactly sure where in the east these guys came from. But we know that they belonged to this uh, group of people who were advisors to kings. They were not kings themselves. It's one of those other things that kind of got layered on there. And we also don't know how many there are because the, the, the scriptures don't tell us that there were three. Some have surmised that there are three because they bring three gifts, but we have no idea of knowing if that is an accurate assumption or an inaccurate assumption. Okay? And we also don't know their names. Okay? That is something that has come down through the Armenian gospel in, uh, Infancy gospel that came out in the 6th century. Uh, they th- throw out three names, and some people have kind of latched on these names, and we really have no idea who these people were or how many of them there were. Uh, but what we do know is that they studied the signs. They looked uh, it for dreams and uh, at the stars for direction and guidance. Now, when I was growing up in, Bo- in uh, the Boston area, um, WBCN was the rock station to listen to. And they had this guy, I see she knows, have you ever listened to that station? No? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm talking about Jessica. She, she's from New Hampshire, so. They had a guy called Daryl Martini, the Cosmic Muffin. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> okay, but every morning every, during the week, you know, Daryl Martini would come on and he'd talk about how, you know, Venus is in retrograde and all of this stuff. And he, he basically was similar to the Magi, seeking to somehow understand signs in the heavens and, and dreams and, and try to make decisions based on this. So he's, he's trying to give you your horoscope, basically, on the radio. Um, not a very good thing to do. So it was mostly comic relief from my perspective. Um, But we have a record of magi 
traveling west to greet a king. Nero, A.D. 66. Maybe he was the Antichrist after all. Um, but uh, they did do this. It was not something that uh, was completely foreign. That the, the, the people in that day wouldn't have gone, that was never going to happen, because they knew that those sorts of things do. And so uh, this was significant. And the reason they came west was because they had seen his star. And they recognized or they believed that astronomical events were often seen to accompany the birth of great kings. There is a legend, I'm not sure if there's any veracity to this, of uh, great signs in the heavens when uh, Alexander the Great was born. I don't know. I didn't want to spend time chasing down that little thread. Um, But we do recognize that uh, Tacitus, Josephus, and some guy whose name I cannot pronounce, uh, Suetonius, record rumors of a world leader that was going to emerge from that region of the world at that particular point in time. And so this is something that secular and non-Christian scholars acknowledge was going on in, 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 sort of, uh, in the world around them. So the star, what is it? What did they see? Some people have said Halley's Comet, which the dates aren't really right on Halley's Comet, uh, some have said that it was a nova, possible. John, uh, James Montgomery Boyce has uh, put out the, the idea, following others, that it was a supernatural event. Okay, That it wasn't a natural phenomenon, that it was a rather a supernatural phenomenon. And uh, this morning, as I was sitting in my office kind of thinking over this, I remembered one year when I was a kid, and uh, the star seemed particularly bright that year. If I went back, if I knew the year, I don't remember which year it is. I wonder if there was like a nova or something going on, some astronomical thing. But I just remember waking up in the middle of the night, having seen it after midnight mass, but then waking up in the middle of the night and just seeing this humongously bright star in the sky, unlike one I'd ever seen before. And that's what they saw, something that was so unusual. Well, looking at the astronomical records that are kept in that part of the world in Babylon and so forth, we see that there was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in Pisces. Don't worry about all of that stuff. But this happened three times in the year 7 AD. The first of which was in, on May 29th, and then I think the second one was somewhere in September, and the third one was on December 4th of 7 AD. So three times that year, this unusual conjunction occurred which would have made them appear far brighter than they do alone. An astounding sight. Is that what they saw? Let's go beyond Matthew for a moment and let's go to Luke and see a few things. A few pieces of data from Luke. Where uh, in Luke 1 it says that in the days of Herod, king of Judea, okay, so he's setting a time frame. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah from Luke chapter 1. So Luke also puts his story, uh, the gospel message with uh, the birth of Jesus within the days of Herod the king. But then he gives us something in in Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, which is what Octavius called himself after he defeated Antony and Cleopatra, for those of you who are history buffs, uh, that all the world should be registered This was the first registration when uh, Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
And here we have a problem. Because Quirinius was governor of Syria beginning in, let me see, make sure I got it right, 6 AD. Herod was a little dead. <laughs> but it talks about the first registration. And this man was also very active in that region, politically active from 10 to 7 AD. And if you do the math, usually they did, they did censuses every 14 years, and so you, 14 years, hey, look, 7 AD. This man oversaw a census in that region at 7 and 7 AD, the very same year that we see this conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. So it's quite possible, I will not declare with any absolute authority, but it is quite possible that Jesus was born on May 29th of 7 BC, if I said AD earlier, forget that, 7 BC, and the Magi arrive on December 4th of 7 BC. So Jesus is approximately seven months old when this account takes place. And when it does take place, the Magi step into this a, a very politically charged situation, looking for the real king of Israel, but meeting the pretender king of Israel. Which leads us to our second part, that the presence of King Jesus reveals the secrets of the heart. Again, from Luke's gospel in chapter 2, we read that when Jesus is presented at the temple, Simon, uh, Simeon rather blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That Jesus is basically going to divide Israel. He's going to come, and he's going to reveal the secrets of people's hearts based on their response to him. This plays out through all four of the gospel accounts. And we see that it happens even right at the beginning, shortly after his birth. That's what Matthew was saying is going on, that the hearts of many are about to be revealed, some for good and some not so good. The Magi logically arrive in Jerusalem. That is the seat of power in that region. That is the, still the capital of Judah. And so it is to there that they go, not knowing that their real destination is in Bethlehem, five more miles south. So they stop, and they ask about the one who was born king of the Jews. Now, let's stop there first for just a moment. Not the one who was born to be king of the Jews, like He's born, and he's, in the future, he's going to be the king. Sort of like when King David had a son named Solomon, he was going to be king uh, of Judah. No. Born king. He already was king. Very significant for us. He's not just a future king, but he is a real king. And we see that as word of this spreads around Jerusalem, we find that Herod is disturbed. He's stirred up. He's concerned because I'm king of the Jews. 
this is a threat to his reign. And he recognizes that. And so he's stirred up, and because he happens to be king of the region, and because he is named Herod the Great, okay, when he gets stirred up, guess what? Everyone else gets stirred up. He leaves a big wake in his path. It's almost like the, the, the WikiLeaks. I mean, all of, all of D.C. is all astir about the WikiLeaks. There's a lot of stuff in there that they're all all worked up about. They're stirred up. They're distressed. Whatever, whatever word you want to use. And that stirred up and distressedness because of the nature of this, the news that has been released is happening also in China and happening also among our allies and all of these things. It's stirred up the whole world and that's what's happening here. It's stirring up everything. A king for the Jews. It's stirring up the, the people. And they ask this simple question, where is he? Herod doesn't know. He doesn't know where the Messiah is supposed to be born, and so he calls in the priests and the scribes. They're assembled, they're gathered before him, and he asked them that question, where was Messiah to be born? What's interesting is they didn't really waste any time. It wasn't like they had to go research it. They gave an answer kind of right then and there. They understood the, the word that had been spoken by the prophet. They quote loosely, from Micah chapter 5, Behold, a virgin... Oh, sorry, wrong chapter. Um, oh, wrong part of the page. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, no means the least among the rulers of Judah. From, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They come with the answer, but they don't even grasp sort of the nature of the answer. Because when you read Micah himself, it, the original prophecy is made during a time in which Israel is about to be overrun and judged for all of its sin. And yet Micah holds out this promise that there is one who is going to arise from Judah again, but not from Jerusalem, but from Bethlehem. It's like God is, is pressing the restart button on everything. I'm going back to the beginning where David came from, Bethlehem. Okay, But it's even more amazing because he says, this person's beginnings are from of old. There's mystery there. He's pointing to the reality that this is no ordinary man that is going to come on, uh, onto the scene, but in fact it is the eternal Son of God taking on flesh and bone. And he is going to be sustained by the power of the Lord as he shepherds God's people with justice. Exactly what those kings in Israel had not been doing. So that is the promise that extends, and that all they're focused on is, is the Bethlehem part. And they got that right. Yeah, he's going to go, to, he's, he's coming from Bethlehem. But they seem disinterested. You have Magi who've just traveled. Seven months to see the king. You'd think they'd want to go with them, don't you? Is here? I mean, like now? You'd think they'd want to go. They'd have, they, they know the prophecy, but they don't believe the prophecy. They have the truth, but they don't love the truth. And they sit 
in Jerusalem while the Magi go farther. They're utterly uninterested, uninterested, disinterested, all of those words. Any more you can think of, too. They can't even go five miles to find the king of the Jews. One of the things that strikes me that I thought of was, was the, the great awakening that took place during the days of, of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. And some of the stories that, that you know, I've read, particularly of when Whitfield was preaching, and of farmers hearing that Whitfield was a few towns over. And they ran. They so wanted to hear the word of God preached by the power of a man like George Whitfield that they ran five, ten miles to hear a sermon. And these guys can't even get motivated to go to the king. These are the religious professionals. If someone's supposed to care about him, it shouldn't it be the religious people? And they didn't. They were just sort of, hey, that's cool. Bethlehem, there's your answer. And they went on, they, apparently they went on their merry way. They, they never tried to go. And, and so we see we have no record of anyone accompanying the Magi. Israel was ignoring their king from the very beginning, which is why John says at the beginning of his gospel, he came to his own and his own received him not. It starts here at the very beginning and it kind of keeps going until the very end of his earthly ministry. Always the resistance. There was a small number who embraced him, but the majority did not. There are many today who recognize the birth of Jesus in some way, shape, or form, but they really ignore his significance and his claims upon him. They are, in a sense, disinterested. They are apathetic. I'm reading a book by Francis Chan right now, and one of his favorite words seems to be lukewarm. (laughs) They're lukewarm. They're neither hot nor cold as Jesus would say to the the church in Laodicea. You know, it's like my wife makes fun of me for many things. But one of the things she makes fun of me about is that I, I don't drink my tea when it's piping hot. I drink lukewarm tea. Okay, I'll let my iced tea warm up a little bit. I don't know why. I'm kind of strange. It's supposed to be iced tea is supposed to be drunk cold, and hot tea is supposed to be drunk hot. And you know, here's this lukewarmness. And as it says in in uh, Revelation three, Church of Laodicea, Jesus says, "I'm going to spit or vomit you out because you're lukewarm." So these guys are basically the definition of lukewarm. The king is born. Okay. They don't really do anything with it. There are many people today who are the same way. The cold, on the other hand, is is Herod. You know? He dismisses everyone else and he keeps the Magi alone with him and he is secretly, and he he begins to deceive them as part of his nefarious plot, which we're going to read about next week. Because he he will not tolerate a rival. And so he says, go, worship him. 
Basically, he probably said something along the lines of, you know, I can't be seen, you know, going with you, but come back and tell me where he is, and I'm going to go, and I'll worship him too, is how he kind of tries to get them into this plot of his. And um, what we see is that while he is cold and the religious people are basically lukewarm, we find that the Magi are, in a sense, hot. They've traveled seven months, five more miles is not a big deal. They go, they, they find the house, they see Mary, they see Jesus, and they worship or prostrate themselves, prostrate rather, uh, to kneel. That's what this word means. It's, it's to kneel or to kiss the feet. It's, it's basically you're bowing down, like, for those of you, sorry if you can't see me, but that's the point, you can't see me. <laughs> It's like in those movies when someone comes before the king, they go, they bow all the way down, and sometimes they would, while they're here, they would kiss the feet of their king or or kiss the the hem of his garment, and so of his robe, and so what they're doing is they're saying, "I belong to you. Your will is my command. You have my allegiance." And so that's what it's spoken of when it's, when it's referring to a person. It can, this word can be used in that context. When it's used with respect to God, it has that added connotation of worship. There's the allegiance and the worship. What's not clear is where these guys were. <laughs> Do they really recognize who he is? Do they recognize that he is the eternal son of God? Or they just they saw the star, they know that a great leader is going to be born, and they're coming to pay their respects? You know, we kind of see... Embassies, envoys do that to pay respects to other governments and so forth. But this is is probably more what was happening here. And we see that they did not come empty-handed, but they showered the king with gifts. And I'm not going to look for any symbolic meaning of any of the gifts, but they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gifts fit for a king. They recognized his greatness. Just as uh, the Queen of the South came and recognized Solomon's greatness and bestowed gifts upon him, we see the similar thing taking place. And sometimes we honor him with our lips, but there's no fruit or, or there's nothing that we don't bring anything. We come empty handed to him. And because he's not just an earthly king, Jesus wants all of us, all that we are, all that we have. He wants our body, he wants our soul, he wants our sexuality, he wants our finances, he wants our abilities, he wants our time, all of which to be brought into his service, to be used for his glory and his honor. It's not about how much you stick in the plate in the offering, because you really can't put your whole self in there. Next week, and I don't expect anyone to try to throw themselves in the hand or hand, uh, the little plate because, you know, our, our deacons are not that strong. Okay? But, you know, picking up on that idea that we see in, in Romans 12, verse 1, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. That is the proper response to us who have seen him for who he is as not just an earthly king, but is the eternal king as the eternal Son of God to become in the flesh to save sinners like us in view of His mercy, everything. All that we are. All that we hope to be. 
all that we're able to do. Which is why Francis Chan talks a lot about lukewarmness in that book. That there should be something that's called crazy about the love that we have for him. Because of what a great God he is. And yet we see that churches have somehow kind of systematically lowered the bar for discipleship of what it means to be a Christian and sort of ignore this reality of, you know, we're supposed to teach people to obey everything Christ has commanded. Oh, you know, show up once a week and, you know, throw a little couple bucks in the plate and you're good, man. You're a Christian. No. <laughs> Jesus says everything. All that you are. He owns us. We recognize this in certain contexts, don't we? you have any Marines that are in here? I don't know. I know we have some servicemen, but no Marines. Okay. Well, you, you know, if, if you went to boot camp, even if you weren't a Marine, okay, we have a Navy guy, right? What did you serve in, George? Army? Same thing. You go to boot camp, guess what? They own you. They say jump. You say, yes, how high? They say run. You go, how far? While you start running. And they usually say, when I tell you to stop. We understand this in certain realms. You know, if your boss tells you to do something at work, more than likely you're going to go, okay, I want my job. But when King Jesus speaks, we kind of like, think about it. Do I want to do that? Something's wrong with this. This week, uh, Urban Meyer resigned as uh, a retired, as coach of the University of Florida Gators, and uh, they were interviewing um, Lou Holtz about this on the radio, and he brought up a quotation by Bear Bryant. Have you you caught that thread? (laughs) Urban Meyer, Lou Holtz, Bear Bryant, who said, if you can live without being a coach, don't coach. I've heard it put similarly uh, in terms of pastoral work. If you can live without being a pastor, don't pastor. And I think um, Spurgeon kind of put it this way. um, If you can do anything else, do it. Talking about that there are certain things that are an all-consuming passion. And pastoring is one of those things that can become an all-consuming passion. Being a Christian is meant to be an all-consuming passion. Such that if you can think of yourself being anything else, don't be a Christian. That makes sense. In light of who Jesus is, far greater than Karl Marx, who for some elicited utter obedience, laying laying aside everything for Karl Marx. I can't fathom that in my, my mind. But Jesus says, come. Follow me. Not just believe in me. That's necessary. That's, you're not going to follow unless you believe, unless you trust. But he also says, follow me. 
Christianity not a spectator sport? But what we see is that we talked last week about dreams, and again, here's another dream. God knows what the Magi don't know. He knows what Herod is about to do. And so he warns them in a dream and says, don't go back to Jerusalem. And so they go home a different way. And so we find God again protecting his son by warning the Magi. He initially protected him by, by coming to Joseph and, and telling him, don't be afraid, take her as your wife. Name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from his sin. So here he's buying time. A little delay that will give Joseph a little more time to get Mary and Jesus out of town. Though Jesus is helpless because he is a baby, his Father in heaven is not and works in such a way to protect him and to preserve him. And so we find that Jesus is born as king. There are some who welcome him. They honor him and they serve him. And there are others that kind of ignore him as an interesting oddity. That's nice. But there are still others who hate him and feel threatened by him. And so honestly, are, are you a loving subject? Or are you more of a disinterested bystander? Or are you secretly seeking to destroy him? Your future, not his hangs upon that. But you can't change who you are. Only He can change who you are. And if you realize that you're one of those disinterested bystanders but you don't want to be, that's because He's already begun to change who you are. He's the King who not only demands allegiance but is able to produce allegiance in the hearts of others. So, let us pray. Father, too often at this time of year we sort of wax nostalgic. Even my little story about the star I saw when I was a kid. But Jesus drew near in part to reveal our condition, the condition of our hearts but he is also the only one able to change the condition of our hearts. And I ask that he would indeed change all that is displeasing to him that is found in us. I ask that uh, our love and allegiance would grow and become clear to all, that, that we might represent him well to a world that needs to see him. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, who was born to make sinners sons of God. Amen.